The Philippines modernizes its Coast Guard, West Papua mourns a pro-independence activist, and upcoming summits in the region. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is November 10th, 2022. On today's show... Because we now have this document that clearly identifies China as the pacing challenge, there really has been a reallocation of resources on capacity building assistance toward much heavier weighting in the Indo-Pacific. That wouldn't have happened without the NDS. That was Christopher Johnstone, Senior Advisor and Japan Chair at CSIS, on the impact of the recently released National Defense Strategy on U.S. policy towards Southeast Asia. I'm excited to learn more, and I'm so glad you get to listen in as well. But first, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have David Dennis in the studio. David is currently an associate with the Southeast Asia practice at the Asia Group and a former intern with CSIS's Southeast Asia program. David, welcome back to the building. Thanks for having me, Karen. I heard you hosted college radio for four years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Famously, we had the 4 to 6 a.m. slot, so all of the longshoremen and long-haul truckers know us very well. Wow. Well, I'll definitely be taking pointers from you. Can you kick us off with news about the Philippine Coast Guard? Of course, happy to. So on November 5th, the Philippine Coast Guard, or PCG, concluded exercises with Japanese and U.S. counterparts. These drills had both operational and symbolic significance. At an operational level, the PCG conducted training on ship towing, vessel inspection, and rescue missions. Symbolically, the drills signal how the Marcos Jr. administration is continuing to strengthen security ties with both Washington and Tokyo. Right. The drills mark a shift from the Duterte administration, which moved closer to Beijing and Tokyo, but distanced itself from Washington. Philippine President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. has articulated a clear rationale for the policy, linking modernizing the Coast Guard and increasing capacity building with protecting Philippine sovereignty. During a speech on October 19th, he argued that the PCG stands in the front line in the defense of the Philippines' maritime territory and economic zones. The affirming rhetoric is a thinly veiled critique of Chinese assertiveness in the South China Sea, including incursions into the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. And I should add that equipment and technological exchange complement these exercises. The U.S. and Japan continue to support the technological development of the Philippine Coast Guard and military. The PCG even used one of its Japanese-supplied patrol vessels during the training last week, and Japan also delivered air surveillance system to the Philippines in early October. The Philippines has also reneged on a helicopter deal with Russia recently, opting instead to purchase aircraft from the U.S. One final note, exercises like the one last week also enabled the Philippine Coast Guard to respond to natural disasters. The PCG continues to play a central role in rescue operations, like those conducted after deadly flash floods and landslides hit the country in late October. The U.S., Japan, and the Philippines all hope that capacity building will help the Philippines respond more effectively to increasingly frequent and severe climate crises. Yeah, I hope so too. Now hearing rescue, I can't help but think of Philip Karma's tragic diving accident last week. For those listeners who aren't familiar, Philip Karma was an advocate for Papuan independence from Indonesia, who passed away last week diving off the coast of the Papuan capital of Jayapura. There's been some speculation around the circumstances of his death, naturally, but his family has quashed rumors of an attempt on his life. His daughter has said on the record that she had, quote, followed the postmortem process, which, quote, determined he died from drowning while diving. Although Karma's family declined to have an autopsy performed, local doctors conducted an external examination and said there was no signs of bruising on the body. However, Karma was known to be a skilled diver, and his wetsuit reportedly had significant damage. A coalition of Papuan activists has formed a team to more thoroughly investigate his death. Karma leaves behind a legacy of nonviolent activism. In contrast with groups like the West Papua National Liberation Army, he repeatedly called for dialogue with the Indonesian government in order to secure Papuan independence. 
He was jailed for treason in 2008 and 2014 for raising the Morning Star flag, a symbol of West Papuan independence banned by the Indonesian government. Karma was hailed as the equivalent of Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela for West Papuans, and human rights activists will mourn his passing. Certainly. Unfortunately, we have to press on. Right after our last episode aired, top envoys in Southeast Asia held a special meeting in Jakarta to discuss the ongoing violence in Myanmar. The meeting concluded with an agreement to hold Myanmar to a, quote, concrete but unspecified timeline for making progress on a plan to end violence in the country. A statement issued by Cambodia noted that further steps will be considered during the upcoming ASEAN summit in Phnom Penh, which, let me check my calendar, I think that actually begins today, right? Mm-hmm. In response, the Myanmar military junta has warned that pressures to create a peace plan will have, quote, negative implications. The ASEAN meeting precedes a slew of summits throughout Southeast Asia this month. The East Asia Summit in Phnom Penh has been ongoing since November 8th and will wrap up by the 13th. On November 15th and 16th, Indonesia will host the G20 Summit, where 17 heads of state, including President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, are expected to attend. Finally, between November 18th and 19th, Thailand will host the annual Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, Summit. At the top of the agenda will be inflation, post-COVID recovery, climate change, and of course the issue of Myanmar for the ASEAN Summit. It's rare, isn't it, to have so many international conferences scheduled in the same region during the same month? Yeah, it is a bit intense. I can't imagine getting on that many flights back to back. Good mileage, though. Yeah, all about the mileage. Now for the fun story. Lego, that's right, you hear me correctly, Lego began construction on their $1 billion carbon neutral factory in the southern province of Binh Dung in Vietnam. Wait, hold on. Lego is officially setting up base in Southeast Asia? Tell us more, David. That's right, the news we've been waiting for for years. The finished plant will be huge, reportedly covering around 60 soccer fields worth of space. Even more impressively, the factory should create around 4,000 new jobs once production begins in 2024. The world's biggest tormentor has also confirmed that solar energy, both from solar farms and rooftop cell panels, will power the factory. LEGO has incorporated design ideas from children at a local primary school, uh, including in a garden and a playground, but unfortunately their offer of a roller coaster and aquarium didn't quite make the cut. I absolutely would have voted for both of those. The company's CEO, Niels Christensen, also noted that the choice to build the company's first ever carbon neutral plant in Vietnam was due to the country's large pool of skilled staff, commitment to carbon neutrality by 2050, and the location's gateway into the growing market of Asian Pacific consumers. Well, I definitely can't top that headline. Thanks for stopping by, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Up next, Greg's interview with Christopher Johnstone. Stay tuned. Hi, listeners. Welcome back for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm Greg Poling, your host. My intrepid co-host, Alina Noor, is not with us today. She's on vacation. Um, one presumes in a warmer clime than Washington, D.C. But I am joined uh, by my colleague, Christopher Johnstone. Chris is our uh, newish now Japan chair here at CSIS after a long and distinguished career in U.S. government service, including in the CIA, the Department of Defense, and the White House, where he uh, ran a lot of portfolios focused on Asia, including Southeast Asia. So, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Greg, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, now the reason I brought Chris on, um, somebody with actual government service, is to talk about the newly released U.S. national security strategy and national defense strategy, both of which have come out after significant delays, um, courtesy of Vladimir Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine. But I don't think they tell us a lot we didn't already expect to know, which is that China remains the top challenge, the pacing threat, pick your, your verbiage, um, that Russia is a short to medium term challenge to be managed. 
And that at the core of that competition with China is going to be a renewed focus on building stronger alliances and partnerships. Uh, but that's my layman's reading. And Chris, what jumps out to you about the NSFs and NDS as, as it applies to approaches to Asia? Yeah, Greg. So I, I think that's right. Not, not, a, not a lot of big surprises in these documents. We already, of course, have the broad frame on, on how the administration is approaching the region, how it thinks about priorities and goals. Uh, I mean, a, a few thoughts. First, I do think the explicit focus on China and the clear definition of China as the pacing challenge is welcome. I realize that some of our allies and partners may be a little bit uncomfortable in some ways with this explicit framing. Even our closest allies may not choose to be this explicit in how they think about the challenges. But certainly from the perspective of the United States and reorienting our own system around the China challenge, I think it's uh, it's useful to have this clear this clear enunciation. I thought, you know, the NSS, there's always the risk that it becomes sort of a Christmas tree document that, that incorporates sort of every department and agency's favorite theme. I thought this document did a pretty good job of setting out an affirmative vision of what we stand for uh, in the region. One thing that struck me in particular is I think it attempts to bring some nuance to this democracy versus autocracy framing. As I'm sure you well know, this is a, a problematic framing in some ways for our interests in the region and in particular in South and Southeast Asia. But the way the document talks about it is in terms of it does set that frame, which very much reflects the president's thinking. I've heard him talk about the world that way. But it does draw the distinction between autocracies that are revisionist, seek to change the rules-based order, and those who live within and accept the existing rules-based order. And I do think that's a nuance that's important. I'm not sure it will uh, attract notice of in the region, right? I think probably the original framing is what will still dominate, but, but a useful nuance nonetheless. And then the last point I would just make on the NSS specifically, and we can talk about the NDS separately, is just the unfortunate reality that we do not have a regional economic strategy. IPEF is nice. I worked on IPEF. It has some useful lines of effort. The supply chain pillar, I think, has the potential to do some useful work with the 14 members. But let's face it, it's no, it's no substitute for U.S. participation in a, in a free trade agreement like CPTPP. And when you combine what I see as some of the, the more punitive elements in the administration's approach on, ec on economics, in particular the export controls recently announced on Chinese semiconductors, with the absence of a of an affirmative market access uh, approach, uh, that, that's, a tough, that's a tough combination to sell in the region. So overall, I think a strong document, and I think you know, the, the, the focus on China is helpful and some good nuance associated with some of the issues, but that economic piece is a challenge. Well, there, there's a lot there I want to pick apart, um, and I'm glad that you brought up the reframing-ish of the autocracy democracy debate. Um, it's certainly the, the talking point that we get the most pushback about, I think, in Southeast Asia, because how can you, on the one hand, insist that everything about the China challenge is to be framed in this autocracy versus democracy prism, and then also expect the Vietnamese, for instance, um, among others, to stand with you in that challenge. And it is, you know, I think the de facto approach has always been that when, when we say we oppose autocracy, we mean we oppose the exporting of autocracy and, and the way that autocratic regimes like China and Russia and North Korea and Iran are revisionist in the international system. And we don't mind, I mean, we don't love it, but we don't, we're not going to oppose 
countries who have non-democratic internal government government systems as long as that stays within their borders. But that has been difficult to communicate. And I think the administration now would say that that this doesn't, the NSS doesn't change the policy, but perhaps it changes the rhetoric. We'll see if they get more disciplined about the way they deliver that in speeches in the region, particularly the way the president does. But a very big picture question first, and before we zoom back into the region, if this didn't have any surprises, and I suspect that over the history of U.S. national security strategies and national defense strategies, most of them have not had a lot of surprises. Other than the cottage industry of folks like us arguing about what, what is in or what is out, why do we go through this? Yeah, well, so I, I think I think the most important thing is this is the best articulation in a single place of how the president views the world. And yes, we knew a lot about that from speeches and other policy documents and, and his own interactions with foreign leaders. But to have it all in one place, setting out his goals, uh, the way he frames the problem, I think has has some utility. I think that's probably the, the, the biggest reason to, to go forward with putting one out at this stage. On the NDS, I think there's a, there is a more important purpose, I would argue. The NDS really does play a role. Assuming senior leaders within the building act based on it, the NDS really does play a role in driving the building. Uh, now, there was a classified version of the document that was available a long time ago, as you know. Um, so this is just the, the unclassified elements of it, but still helpful uh, in the larger ecosystem of Washington. But it really does drive policy. And then the specific example of that, when I was working on South and Southeast Asia, one of our biggest frustrations was the continued skewing of capacity building assistance toward other parts of the world, not the Indo-Pacific. Because we now have this document that clearly identifies China as the pacing challenge, there really has been a reallocation of resources on capacity building assistance toward much heavier weighting in the Indo-Pacific. That wouldn't have happened without the NDS. But it, having this document allows Assistant Secretary Ratner to go into internal meetings and say, we need to execute the strategy. And in this particular case, this is the form that it would take, more assistance to our Indo-Pacific partners. So it does have, I think, practical impact inside the Pentagon. That's, that's a really helpful distinction. Because you do see, um, you know, think pieces written from time to time about whether or not we need to scrap the NSS or... Is it worth the energy that the interagency has to go through? You don't hear those arguments about the NDS as much. So if the NSS and NDS taken together, but I think particularly NSS um, kind of encapsulate the president's take on what is now the bipartisan consensus in Washington, that China is the competitor, the major threat to U.S. national security interests. You mentioned the uh, the recent export controls on high-end semiconductors and, and uh, chip fabricating tools. And that has left me with a question that I don't quite think is answered by the NSS, which is, have we fundamentally shifted to something closer to a containment strategy when it comes to China? Now that we are explicitly pursuing economic policies, not just to outcompete, but to deny certain economic sectors entirely to the Chinese, both civilian and military, does that indicate that we have fundamentally shifted our strategy? I don't think in a formal way, certainly, we we're moving down the path of a containment strategy, but there's no question that we have containment characteristics in what we're doing. 
as you said, this was a significant movement. These controls are not just about ensuring the United States stays ahead. They're about pushing China down in this particular sector. My understanding is that there are other sectors uh, that may come. Uh, other AI-related technologies, biotech, for example. We're certainly in a strategy of with containment characteristics. Now, I suspect that the administration would characterize these moves as, as targeted, focused in a few high-tech areas. I do think, though, that they have a signaling effect that may impact other industries as well. Uh, I was just in Japan, for example, meeting with some executives at, a, at an auto manufacturer who talked broadly about their concern about the trajectory of U.S.-China relations and said that they're doing internal thinking about constructing, in effect, separate supply chains. One supply chain that supports their operations in China and another that supports their operations in, in North America and Europe. Now, we'll see if that actually happens. It's no doubt highly inefficient and costly. It may not be possible. But the point is that actions in one sector, however targeted they may be in intent, do send signals to others in the marketplace that could have that could have spillover effects. Let's zoom in a little bit on Southeast Asia, um, since that's in the name of the podcast. Uh, and I suppose we we really we really should. So I don't love doing the word count, you know, the, the DC word search of the documents, but it's also a combined like 130 pages uh, in the NSS and NDS, and we have a limited podcast. So the word count for Asia in the NSS, uh, Taiwan is mentioned seven times. India is mentioned seven times. Australia is mentioned seven times. The Quad, six. Let's skip a few. Uh, ASEAN is mentioned three times. New Zealand, Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, one each. Vietnam, Malaysia, not at all. Now, if you're in the Philippines, one way to interpret that is, hey, we weren't mentioned in the interim national security strategy guidance at all. So that's an improvement. Neither were the Thais. Now we have the same billing as the Republic of Korea, which was also only mentioned once. But also the Quad is clearly getting more love than ASEAN. You know, AUKUS got more love than ASEAN or any of the Southeast Asian partners. My read on this is that that's, I mean, frankly, because we wanted to mention all the uh, all the allies, make sure everybody got some love. We didn't want to mention every strategic partner. But when it comes to the multilateral focuses, it's clear that the Quad and AUKUS are doing more stuff. They are competing with China, uh, even if it's in non-military spaces, delivering public goods, etc. ASEAN's not. Um, and so this may reinforce some of the concerns within Southeast Asia that the U.S., while paying lip service to ASEAN centrality, is actually more focused on using outside, minilateral formats like the Quad to engage in Southeast Asia. And my interpretation is actually that is exactly what we're doing. We're just not going to say it um, to ASEAN because that would be impolite. Is that how you read this as well? Partly, yes. Look, I think in fairness, I think the administration has worked to engage ASEAN as a whole. They did invite all of the ASEAN leaders to the White House, with the exception of Myanmar, earlier this year. That was a, that was a significant step. But look, I think it's, it, it wouldn't be news to anyone to, to say that ASEAN is challenged in its effectiveness these days. As someone who every year attended the ADMM Plus meetings and saw, frankly, how little practical work was done through them uh, and how much they were encumbered by 
differences between, frankly, the United States, Russia, China on some of the big issues, as well as the divisions within ASEAN itself. But Chris, this year, the the uh, Russians and the Burmese are co-hosting the ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus counterterrorism exercise. Surely, surely that's that's concrete progress. <laughs> yeah. So I think that exactly makes the point. So I think it's true. I think it's fair to say that the administration is in investing more energy in some newer means of promoting cooperation around the region. So AUKUS is, is a good example of that. Quad is a good example of that. They're also investing in structures like the US, Japan, and Australia. Uh, that trilateral mechanism, US, Japan, ROK. I do think that there is a desire to engage ASEAN in a multilateral way, or at least members of ASEAN in a multilateral way, the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative uh, will involve work with a number of ASEAN states along with Indian Ocean region partners and along with Pacific Island partners. And uh, there certainly will be no walking away from ASEAN itself. Uh, but I do think uh, just as a matter of simple reality, um, ASEAN and ASEAN institutions are challenged right now. And, and so there is uh, an investment in other vehicles for promoting cooperation in the region. And in, in bilateral relationships in the region where those are likely to pay concrete dividends more than, than multilateralism would, which is why you get a Philippines and Indonesia mentioned by name, um, and perhaps not, not some others. I will note the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework got four mentions So in the NSS. Uh, so I, that's something, uh, I guess. I can't wait to find out what's in it. All right, let's let's shift forward a little bit. So people will be listening to this on Thursday. We are recording on Monday. Tomorrow there will be midterm elections here in the United States. And I'm going to say 50-50 chance that our listeners will listen to this knowing who controls the Senate and the House. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that control of one of those chambers is likely to flip. What does that mean for the sustainability and implementation of these strategies, of, of kind of the Biden administration strategy for the region? I don't think it means much in terms of change, actually. I mean, one of the striking things about Washington today is the very strong bipartisan consensus on China policy. Uh, both parties are focused on China as the pacing challenge. Both parties are focused on things like ensuring Taiwan has the ability to defend itself and on Things like strengthening our partnerships with allies. So I don't see big change. That also applies to the maybe less positive part of the ledger as well. And that is, that is to say, I don't think, for example, that a new political dynamic here in Washington will change the outlook for uh, CPTPP, for example. Uh, but I think, I think in general, the good news is that the broad contours of U.S. policy toward Asia are held uh, in the same way in both parties, with some differences on the margin, but I don't think that they're significant. Let me ask one more question uh, as it relates to the NSS and NDS. There's not a lot of focus in the NDS on Southeast Asia. In fact, none of the individual countries get, get mentioned, but there is a lot of focus on Taiwan. There's a lot of focus on China in ways that are clearly going to affect Southeast Asia, like maritime security. If we think of Kind of the ranking of priorities for this administration in the region. I mean, obviously, with Australia, Japan, Quad, Taiwan up top, where do you put Southeast Asia? Where do you put this deepening of cooperation with, with particularly the most forward-leaning partners like the Philippines and Singapore, maybe Indonesia? I think it's quite high, actually. 
um, when I when I look at the focus on the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, I think a very high priority. Perhaps not at the secretary level, but there's senior level State Department in- engagement that's consistent and sustained. Same with the Department of Defense. I think Southeast Asia is a very high priority, or at least, as you said, particular bilateral relationships within it. Now, that's complemented by a focus on other parts of the region as well. So of late, you know, the Pacific Islands has also been an area of priority. But I do think that there is a, a desire to, to, to sustain focus. And the, and the summits that we have coming up over the next week or so are going to bring, you know, the president, the vice president back to the region uh, and we'll give an opportunity for them to to engage as well. So now, as you as you know, there are there are lots of distractions in the world, but I think I do think that Southeast Asia is a, is a pretty high priority for this administration. Well, Greg, let me uh, take guest prerogative and turn turn it back on you. How, how do you think the NSS has been and the NDS have been received in in Southeast Asia? Be interested in your perspective on that. Well, caveat with the fact that the average Southeast Asian is no more likely than the average American to read uh, the NSS or the NDS. But I do think our counterparts in academia and government and, you know, the elite worlds in those countries, particularly our close partners, do pay attention. So far, like us, I don't think there's a lot of surprises. You know, you're not going to talk to a Philippine expert or a Vietnamese government official who's going to be surprised that the USS views China as the pacing threat um, or that... Russia's invasion of Ukraine had to lead to a rewrite and elevation of, of Russia as, as a major short-term or medium-term threat. There will be, there is some heartburn about the seeming elevation of the Quad in India and Australia in AUKUS above, at least in, in some minds, Southeast Asia. Although I'll note that you know ASEAN getting, I think it was three mentions, um, ain't, ain't too shabby. Uh, and as I said earlier, the Philippines and Thailand both got a mention, which is more than they got in the interim national security strategic guidance uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration. It also probably helps in places like Manila that they got a mention and the Vietnamese didn't. <laughs> they, they really, really don't like it when the U.S. seems to give priority to non-allies over treaty allies. You know, a lot of this, though, comes down to implementation. Uh, and I, I will, of course, note that they will have the exact same complaint you did. Where's, where's the economic policy in this grand competition with China? Right now, it's just IPEF. And I think everybody's trying to make lemonade out of those lemons. IPEF is nice, as you said, but it's, it's not a trade strategy. So we will have, um, starting in a week, present going on a four country, at least, well, president going on a three country at least swing and then and then the administration going on a four country swing. So Egypt for the next COP summit and then they're headed to Asia for the ASEAN and East Asia summits in Phnom Penh, the group of 20 summit um, in Bali where we may or may not um, have Putin in attendance and we may or may not get a Biden-Chi bilat. And then uh, President Biden will come back home and Vice President Harris will go to Bangkok for the APEC summit where the U.S. will formally take over the chairmanship. All of that is going to be exciting and uh, spoiler will be the focus of the next uh, issue of Southeast Asia radio. But for now, I'm going to have to wrap this one up. Chris, thank you so much for joining me listeners. Uh, I'm Greg Poling. The seat next to me was for Alina Noor. She will be back next week uh, and we will speak to you then. Thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, feedback, or suggestions at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. If you like this episode, do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer. Our interns are Nikki Arcado and Mike Tiernan. Our host today was Greg Poling. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm David Dennis. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Thank you.